You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Ege Erzos, who is using Phoenix and Elixir to build a sales automation and project management service. Ege, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Yeah, very happy to have you on. So do you want to start things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Yeah, uh, my name is Ege, and I am the uh, technical co-founder for Pricetable.io. And as you said, we are a sales automation and project management platform. Um, We have been at it for a little over two years now, and we are profitable, and we, we are now on a good track. Um, And I'm happy to talk about the project more as we go through this. Awesome. So, you know, you mentioned this being started three years ago. Has it been one developer working on the project the whole time or is there a team behind this one? It has been just me as the sole developer. And I also have a non-technical co-founder who is the domain expert slash uh, product manager slash tester. Nice. Always nice when you have a co-founder with a lot of slashes in their title. Yep, yep, exactly. So three years ago using Elixir, I mean, Elixir was, it was definitely one node by then, but what was the experience like working with Elixir that early on? Honestly, it was pretty nice because I originally had some doubts about picking Elixir because it's not a mainstream language yet, at least. Uh, and it definitely wasn't uh, back then. I had some doubts, but as I sort of uh, built some, um, you know, hobby applications and experimented with various different ideas using Elixir and Phoenix, I realized that the Elixir community was very, very friendly and very welcoming. And also everybody was sort of on the more experienced side, which meant that they were very good about not just answering the actual question that you're asking, but also the underlying fundamental concepts. Once I realized that it was going to be smooth sailing in that regard i decided to go with it i'm the type of person who sort of gets stuck on something and then bang his head on it for a while and then i won't hesitate to ask someone uh, if i'm confused about something so when i pick a project or when i when i pick a tool or a language uh, the availability of help and assistance is important uh, for me and because i'm the sole developer it was exceptionally important and elixir definitely exceeded my expectations in that regard. Right. Yeah, no, the community around there is awesome for uh, answering questions because I've, I've definitely asked my uh, fair share in the forums and they're always very fast to respond. So when it came to building this app, like how long do you think it took you to put together an MVP? You know, at some point where you shipped it, but maybe it's not complete. So that's a great question. The MVP uh, was actually built using a no-code platform. And there's a bit of a back backstory there that I'll, I'll briefly summarize. Uh, I work as a consultant in my day job and we uh, utilize a no-code platform to help our clients. And the idea of price table came from a project that I, I created using that platform. And then we got really rave reviews from users. That's when I realized that there was some potential for... Um, kind of like a standalone SaaS application that handled uh, that problem domain. By the time we, like, like by the time I wrote the first line of code for Pricetable, 
uh, we had already considered the idea validated. That is, yeah, that is very cool to hear. So you mentioned, you know, the site is profitable. You don't need to get into specific revenue numbers, but like what type of traffic are we dealing with here? Like whatever makes sense, you know, like number of customers or requests per minute or whatever. Well, we do. So we have three customers and a total of 50 user licenses. And, you know, each license is like $50. So that's how the 2500 per month came from on that Hacker News post. Um, so that's the, I mean, every customer has different usage patterns, so we don't really measure traffic or, you know, requests per minute or anything like that. It's just deviates throughout the day, depending on which customer is doing what tasks. Right. So a couple of minutes ago, you kind of went over, you know, working with Elixir and Phoenix and how great the community is and, you know, it worked out for you, but did you ever consider using a different tech stack to begin with, like, or did you choose Phoenix and Elixir and like learned it as you go because you just wanted to learn something new? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Originally, uh, I was going to go with Ruby and Rails because that's what I had the most experience with. And by most experience, I don't mean that I had actually created anything like production grade. But uh, I started le- self teaching or learning development, uh, software development back in 2010. And using you know ruby javascript various hobby projects and stuff and by 2016 or 17 ruby was the only server-side language that i had used in any sort of i guess semi-serious fashion and when price table was conceived originally thought about ruby but then i realized that i also wanted to learn something new and elixir was really exciting for a variety of reasons I talked about the helpfulness of the community, but also I liked the underlying, um, underlying tech stack. The fact that the language itself was essentially friendly, but also an interface to uh, theme which had been around for you know thirty years. Um, so it was kind of a you know wanting to learn new things situation, but at the same time, um, I was also impressed by Elixir and Erlang ecosystem. Nice. And yeah, at that point, I guess the app was still successfully running just with a no-code solution. So it wasn't like you were doing nothing. You were just, you know, developing that as the app was doing its thing. Yes. Okay. So when it comes to the Elixir ecosystem, are there certain features of Elixir that you're taking advantage of in this app? Like, do you use any gen servers or even on the Phoenix side, do you use something like LiveView or Channels? Uh, We use Channels, uh, not very heavily, but for things like being able to show accurate progress bars to users when they're uploading like a large file. Um, Like, for example, in one part of our application, uh, users can upload lists of customers, which are CSV files, and they can be very long lists. So let's say, you know, thousand row CSV file, and then each row contains customer and uh, you know, company information and various other stuff. Uh, when the server is processing that file, we want it to be able to show accurate progress bars to the user. So there's like a channel that we open at the start of the upload and then we push progress updates to that channel as, the, as we chuck through the CSV file. So that's one example of how we use channels. Um, and then gen servers, we use it as well. So one of the features that we have is that when you send out an estimate, you can configure um, automatic expiration for the estimate. So, estimate. 
So, for example, you send something and then a month later, if you don't hear back anything, then your pricing may have become outdated at that point. We have a Jan server that runs uh, several times a day, I think once per hour, to uh, iterate through estimates on the in the database and calculate whether they should expire or not. So Jan server was a pretty good and elegant setup for that. Nice. So when it came to setting that up, did you look at like alternative tools to maybe use? Like, I know there's Oban in the community to do like reoccurring tasks. Like, what made you choose a Gen server in the end? Was it just like the simplicity of just being built into the language? Uh, at the time we added this feature, it was still early on in the product's lifecycle, and Oban was either fairly new or wasn't that thing yet. And at the same time, I asked several people in the Elixir community, and they both said, yeah, just use a Gen server. Because task itself, it runs every hour, but at the same time, it's not super critical. So you don't have to worry too much about like weird failure scenarios if they happen. So at that point, it's just, you know, scheduling something to run every X number of hours or X number of days is a pretty uh, common gen server use case. So I figured why not just do that? Yeah, for sure. So for that channel setup, that sounds really cool. So every time you process one record on the back end, do you push... Uh, an event over a website channel, so they see like you know four of a thousand, five of a thousand, etc. I don't think it's per record. I think we use maybe every ten records, or it might even be dynamically calculated. We definitely don't want to be too noisy because you know the user may be on a mobile device, and we don't want to eat up a whole bunch of bandwidth just to push uh, granular progress updates on a progress bar. But I think it's definitely like every percentage or every you know, 2% or whatever, we have like a threshold set up uh, whereby they are still getting an accurate uh, impression of progress, but it's not like a super, super real-time thing. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense, right? It's like, imagine you have like 40,000 of them. You don't really need 40,000 events, especially if it finishes in like, I don't know, 10 seconds. Exactly. Yep. So this application itself, do you have it set up to be a monolithic app or do you have it broken out into a couple of different services or umbrella apps? It is a monolithic app. At the time we started the project, Umbrella apps were also either fairly new or were not a thing yet. And also it's monolithic in the sense that there's a Vue.js front end and it's all one big mono repository. I did a lot of back and forth on whether I should split them into smaller parts or whether I should go with a mono app. And in the end, I realized for the sake of simplicity, keeping everything in one place would be just better. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Now, it is interesting though that you chose uh, Vue on the front end. So does that mean this, this Phoenix application, is it just like an API backend? It is mostly an API backend. Some of the pages are still server rendered HTML. So for example, the login pages, forgot my password page, unlock my account because I entered the wrong password too many times page, um, the landing page, the pricing page and so on, those are all static or, you know, server-rendered HTML. But once you log in, once your session is created, um, you are redirected to the Vue.js app, and then everything happens um, inside the Vue.js app from there. Okay. And by the way, when it comes to using Phoenix, do you use the latest stable version of it? Uh, yes, I believe we are on 1.5.7. Maybe not the latest, latest, but definitely the latest major version. Right. But like as new versions come out, you're sort of upgrading as you go, sort of. 
Yes and no. We it depends on how risky of an upgrade is going to be. I tend to follow a pragmatic approach to version upgrades for frameworks because I don't want to find myself in a situation where I upgrade something and have to troubleshoot a whole bunch of you know incompatibility problems or various other you know um, issues that may result from an upgrade so typically I will upgrade um, a library or a framework if I have to or if a new thing has come up maybe performance improvements or uh, new features that I need to utilize for something that I'm working on sorry for example I was on Elixir 1.9.2 until about a month ago and I ended up upgrading to Elixir 1.11 because another library that I was using I had started to use uh, required that but otherwise I may have just stayed on Elixir 1.9 for a while at least until support ran out. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to basically stick with what works and then if there's something cool or necessary, go for it for the upgrade. Now, three years ago when you started this project, do you remember what version of Phoenix you were using? Like roughly, like what's it, 1.3 or something else? I think it may have been 1.2 or 1.3. Kind of hazy. I'd need to check the version control system to give a solid number on that. Right, that's fine. Now, between going from, you know, 1.3 to 1.5, you know, there was the introduction of uh, Phoenix Context. Did you end up reorganizing your application to use that pattern as you were updating to a new version of Phoenix, or did you kind of just leave it as it was before? Uh, I definitely went through that switch. Originally, contexts were not a thing, and then my code base was organized in a certain way, and then when context became a thing, I read about them and I was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. I definitely need need to reorganize everything. It's It sounds like such a simple thing, but at the same time, once you go through that, almost like a flipping a switch in your head, it becomes way easier to sort of reason about your code base, especially as it gets large. Yeah, absolutely. So on the topic of context, do you want to rattle off a couple of different context names that you have and you know what type of schemas are inside of there? So, for example, on the, sorry, I'm actually looking at my code editor as, as we speak. So, for example, I have a customer's context that handles everything related to customers. And the customer's context has a customer schema, obviously. It has a company schema. It has a job site schema. It has a phone number schema for um, customers who may have multiple phone numbers, you know, office phone number, mobile phone number, and so on. Uh, it has a timeline item context for tracking uh, changes that happen to a customer record so that you can see, hey, this customer had a new phone number added by this user on this date, and so on. So that's an example. Another context we have is the projects context. And there's project under there. There's follower for people who need to receive notifications when a change happens to a project. There's a project event schema um, for scheduling events related to a project and so on and so forth. Right, so a couple of contexts there. Now, I guess it's interesting that, you know, you weren't starting from ground zero with a project after contexts were created. So, you know, you already had the existing app up and running. Did you find it to be, I guess, easier than to move into context because you sort of knew your 
domain already? I think that's a fair assessment. Being familiar with the domain made it easier to think in terms of context because contexts are kind of like a natural way of thinking about discrete concepts, if you will. And if you already are familiar with what those concepts are, what what the problem domain is, then it's going to be uh, easier to make the switch. But if you are, you know, starting from scratch, context may also encourage you to sort of split your big problem domain into smaller, more manageable chunks. So they may be advantages from that perspective. I just haven't had that experience yet with, um, you know, coming fresh into a problem and starting with context. Right. So maybe in the future, you'll develop another application using Phoenix and Elixir and, and get that opportunity to start from scratch. Do you think you'll see yourself doing that in the future? Um, I mean, it's possible. Currently, price table is my life and it has been my life for the past you know, about three years or so. But in the future, I think if I create another app, then there's a really good chance that um, Elixir and Phoenix will be my stack of choice again. Nice. And, you know, you don't need to give specifics to this answer here, but how big is this application roughly? Like how many modules and lines and stuff? Like I know you're not going to have exact answers, but just to give some scope of what we're dealing with here. I can give you the line of lines or number of lines of code. Um, so the Phoenix side has about 40,000 lines of code and then the VJS has about twice that. Okay. Wow. I'm really happy that I asked that question because that's a pretty substantially sized app. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, over 100,000 lines of code so far. Right, and this are you working on this then full-time? I mean, you mentioned it's your life, but are you basically in the code base hacking around on a daily basis? Definitely on a daily basis. I would say I put in at least 20 hours a week um, into price table. Wow, very cool. So is that in addition to doing like a full-time job on the side, or do you kind of just do this and that's it? Uh, it's in addition to my full-time job. I'm a... Uh, technology consultants during the day and I uh, develop uh, price table basically evenings and weekends. Cool. Yeah. Developer at night. <laughs> yep, exactly. So when it comes to the Phoenix side of things or Elixir specifically, do you recall any uh, packages that you use to help build your project? Like things that might be in your mix file? Well, let me check my mix file real quick and I will be able to tell you. So I'm going to skim over the things that come with Phoenix, like Ecto, obviously, and, and various other things. One of the libraries that has been super helpful is Timex, and it's everybody's probably go-to library for time and date management. But Timex was interesting because one of the challenges I ran into when I first started developing Elixir, coming from a Ruby background, is that Elixir's standard library is uh, much more, I don't want to say limited, but it's a smaller core of functionality than say Ruby. So, you know, things that you can do in Ruby just out of the box, you need to think in terms of, or you need to get, get a library in, in Phoenix to do it, uh, or in Elixir to do it. And Timex was one of the things that I, I think one of the first uh, libraries I installed as I was uh, dealing with data and time management and calculations and similar things. Money is another, um, Another Elixir package that I use to handle currency currencies and whatnot, specifically formatting currencies in a way that's user friendly. When you, you know, download a PDF from Price Table for an estimate, uh, the PDF is actually an HTML template, and then we, you know, 
when compiling that template, we use the money library to, uh, you know, format currencies in a user-friendly way. There's some other stuff like X XAWS is another library we use to store files in Amazon S3. We use Bamboo for um, email management, everything related to emails. Uh, recently, I would say about a month ago, we started Oban. We started using Oban to handle recurring invoices. So one of the things you can you could do in Price Table for a long for a long time um, was create invoices and send them to customers when the time comes to collect payments for an estimate or a project. Uh, we recently added the ability to have recurring invoices, and Oban was a really good fit for that. So that's another library that we are so far very happy with. Yeah, I'm a big fan of using Oban as well. Do you happen to use the free open source version, or do you have the the paid one? We have the paid one because uh, we needed the cron schedules to be customizable uh, at runtime, and the uh, pro version had that feature, whereas the paid ver- um, the free version did not. So we are using the pro paid version. Right. Okay. And do you happen to also use their web UI to explore the statuses of those jobs, just as like a little bonus, or do you not use that? I haven't really dug into that too much yet. Uh, it's a definitely a point of kind of like something that I'm curious about, but I just need some spare time to um, sort of start playing with it in my development environment first. Yeah, it's also one of those funny things too, right? It's like Open just sits there doing all the work. It's working fantastically. It's like, eh, I kind of don't need to see anything because everything just works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you happen to use any other uh, Phoenix features or I guess external libraries, like something like the live dashboard? We don't. So Live View has been has been the hot thing in, in the Phoenix community for at least the past year. And it is on my radar. Uh, and everything that uses uses Live View, such as dashboards and stuff. One of the reasons that I haven't really gotten into the Live Dashboard uh, is because I just need to think of a way to um, integrate it into what I already have in a way that is secure. So if I want to use Live View, the Live View dashboard to look at production, um, the production environment, for example, I, I just need to like look into how I can do it in a, in a way that's A, going to be simple enough and not going to require a ton of customization and also secure. Um, something that, again, is on my list, like a thousand other things that I haven't gotten to yet. Right. Yeah. Secure in the sense that like maybe like lock it behind. Uh, you need to be like an admin user to see it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the front end. So you mentioned you are using Vue there. Do you have all this managed by Webpack or some other tool? Uh, it is all managed by Webpack, yes. Okay. Do you happen to know if you're using, well, you're going to know this for sure, but are you using Webpack 4 or 5? Uh, you say you are going to know that for sure, but I actually am not sure. I think it may be 4 because I don't remember upgrading to Webpack 5 recently. So it may be 4 still. Okay. So when it comes to managing the front end with Webpack there, do you happen to use something like SAS or, you know, Stylus instead of regular CSS? Like how do you manage your CSS? Uh, my CSS is all SCSS. Okay. So you're using SAS? Yes. Um, and so all of my, so VJS has single file components which is uh, what I use in my project and 
for every component that needs a CSS, uh, CSS styling. If it's component specific, then I put it in the components file. Otherwise, I put it in the more general um, app.view file that uh, has app-wide CSS. Okay. Yeah, so my view knowledge is very weak. I have not used it firsthand, but I've o- I'm always hearing terms like view components and the idea of a component. Now, you don't need to go into super details about this one, but like how many components do you actually have? Where, you know, I guess correct me if I'm wrong here, like a component would be, you know, like a card or a button or like a form field or something like that. Is that how that works? Uh, it could be. I think that, I mean, that is definitely how it works. There is no, there is no predefined size in terms of what a component is. It can be a button, it can be a page. Like, for example, if you are going to be using the exact same layout to uh, show two different types of objects, then you can create a component, more like a more abstract component that you know defines that layout and then plug in data or feed data to that component at runtime when you need to render that object. Okay, maybe something like a like a like a data tables or something like that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Data, data tables are, are a great example. Components can have components inside them, which is one of the strengths of a library like V or React or, or any other front-end library that people use. Uh, the idea is that you are empowered to reuse things when it, it makes sense to do so. And at the same time, you have the flexibility of just creating a new component if what you already have doesn't fit the bill. Or if, if you don't want to make what you already have overly complicated. Right. Now, as for maybe data tables, do you happen to use something like that in your application? And if so, did you code all that from scratch? Oh, so we use a front-end framework called Vuetify. And Vuetify is Vue.js's material design library. It's not the official one, but it's definitely like the go-to material design library in, in Vue.js and we use Vue5 basically everywhere and it has made our lives like UI development so uh, easy and it's difficult to describe because Vue5 itself comes with a ton of components like data tables and timelines and uh, buttons and uh, a grid layout that is responsive and and way more things. We use it basically heavily in in every every single page in in our application in our front 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 end application. We use Vuetify uh, components or components that use Vuetify components. Very nice. So was that one deciding feature on why you decided to make an API backend to use Vue because you were you, you know you knew about that library beforehand and thought it would help a lot just because you can take advantage of it. It wasn't a deciding factor. It was, I wanted to have an API base because I like the separation of concerns. I like the idea of the server being responsible for, um, you know, fetching data and presenting it to a front end that end does whatever it needs to do with that data. That's why I originally went with an um, API based server and a JavaScript front end. And I think Beautify was uh, something that I came across about a couple of weeks into when I first, you know, started working on Price Table. Um, my sister also works as a developer, and I think she told me about Beautify, and I looked at it, and I was blown away by how robust it was. So that's how I, it came to be. And my memory is a little hazy because it's 
so long ago now, especially with what has happened in the past year. Um, but that's what I remember. Right. <laughs> yeah. Last like two years of basically just one, one continuous day. Yes, exactly. So speaking of APIs, uh, do you think down the line, maybe you'll offer like a native mobile app for your app where you can take advantage of the API or maybe even a, a public API that users can use? Public API requests, uh, it has actually come from our flagship customer because they have other line of business applications and they wanted to be able to uh, pull data from price table and push data to price table. So that has been a feature request that has so far come up once or twice. And it is on the product roadmap, but not until later this year. In terms of a mobile app, we actually made a conscious decision to not go with a mobile app, at least so far, because um, the types of users we work with, we realized that they did not want to download and install and maintain yet another app on their devices. And they wanted to simply have everything work on a web page. And that's one of the strengths of price table is that everything is optimized for uh, mobile devices. So you can use it on your desktop screen if you want, or you can use it on uh, your mobile device. And it is the exact same JavaScript application. It's just rendering um, things differently based on your screen size. And it is something that our users really appreciate. Yeah, it's always very nice when you have like top tier support for all devices, but you can still get away with having one code base to render it all. Exactly. Cool. So before we move on to maybe talking about the rest of your tech stack, uh, you know, you mentioned this application is profitable, so you are probably accepting payments for this one. Do you happen to use Stripe for that or do you use a different payment provider? We use Stripe. Okay. When it comes to setting up Stripe, do you remember which package you used, if any, to get set up to talk to their API? So... This is kind of an interesting topic because it, it kind of also plays into the state of the ecosystem at the time. At the time, the official, well, the semi-official or the go-to Elixir library for Stripe was in a weird transition phase slash limbo. My understanding or my memory is that the, the original maintainers... Um, had left or had some other ideas and a new set of maintainers came in and they realized that they wanted to make big changes. And when I read those um, issues on GitHub, GitHub and you know some of the related conversations, it didn't fill me with a lot of confidence. So what I ended up doing is that for the Stripe features that price table users, I created my own set of API wrappers and started using those and it has worked really really well nice so for some of that wrapper code you know did you create some module to where it sets up things like headers and api keys so you can kind of just call functions and you don't have to worry about all that stuff yeah so it's a billing module um, or everything is namespaced on their billing there's a, a payment adapter that defines behaviors for any other modules that will um, implement you know, payment-related functionality. And then there's um, a gateway that sort of determines uh, whether the app is going to actually call Stripe or whether you are running uh, test cases and you just need to, you know, use a, you know, stop function call, for example. Um, so originally it was just as um, a, a 
simple set of functions, but over time, as I, my test cases started running into or started covering areas of the application that handled uh, Stripe, such as you know new account signups and being able to add new user licenses and stuff, I realized that uh, being able to abstract that functionality out to a behavior was going to be uh, more preferable. So kind of expanded from there. Right. So maybe now we can switch gears and, and talk a little bit more about your tech stack. So, you know, Phoenix and Elixir on the back end there. Uh, which database do you use? We use Postgres. Cool. So anything else besides that? Like, do you happen to use Redis as well or no? Well, we don't use Redis. We are hosted on GigaLixir. And that has been that has been very successful for us because uh, one of the things that um, I looked for when I was um, looking at Elixir slash Phoenix was that I wanted something that is similar to Heroku, which definitely spoiled me from my Ruby on Rails days. And I wanted to be able to just not worry about infrastructure. Not because I'm against like developers learning about infrastructure necessarily, but because essentially I'm the only technical person on the team and it's important for me to make sure that I'm using my time wisely. So I figured if I can push infrastructure management to another party, namely Gigalixer, then I could worry about you know my app and it is its own features um, and basically be more productive. Shorter version, we are on Gigalixir, and then we also use their Postgres offering, which I believe is behind the scenes, is, uh, can be either Google-based or AWS-based. Um, and then that is the extent of how much we worry about infrastructure. Okay, so when it came to picking either Google or AWS for that, did you pick one or did you just like go with one because whatever? At the time, um, I believe the only only offering on Gigalixer was Google, so that is what we went with. Today, if I created um, an app from scratch on Gigalixer, I think I would go with AWS. Okay, so when it came to choosing Gigalixer versus Heroku, what made you choose Gigalixer in the end? Was it just because it's like super focused on Elixir applications? It is super focused on Elixir applications, and Heroku has some limitations with regards to whether your uh, Elixir nodes can communicate with each other, which can sort of limit scalability. Uh, and Gig Elixir um, was my choice because the founder of Gig Elixir, his name is Jess, uh, Jess Shea, I think. I don't remember his last name, so I apologize if you are listening, Jess, and I slaughter this, but uh, he is a super nice guy, very responsive, and I really liked the idea of having that kind of first-class support whenever I needed something. And he has been extremely, extremely helpful and definitely played a big role into picking Yigalitsu over Heroku, which is way more institutional. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that level of customer support of just knowing that, you know, the business owner is talking to you as a human being and you're not just like customer 8,242 million, like you're just an actual person. Like, yeah, that helps a lot. Exactly. So for this Gigalixer setup, I've actually never used the platform firsthand, but how many like Heroku Dino equivalents do you run on Gigalixer? Like how many nodes or whatever runs? Uh, that's a great question. It may be about my pay grade a little bit, but we use a single replica. So let me actually launch the dashboard real quick. 
uh, we use a size two replica. So I think that means we have about you know single gig or two gigs of RAM on um, a single container. Okay. Now, while you look that up, speaking of containers, do you happen to use something like Docker just in development or no? No, no, no. I just um, well. Giga Elixir refers to them as replicas, and I didn't know whether that is actually something that is kind of common industry speak or if it's a Giga Elixir specific product. I'm assuming that it's a container behind the scenes, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure what they run on the platform. Speaking of which, like maybe I can uh, ask Jess to be on the show. It'd be awesome to see how his platform is developed. I think that would be a very, very compelling episode, to be honest. Yep. So back to your app here, though. Um, if you're open to this, like, what type of build do you get for Giga Elixir every month? I think, so we have two environments on Gigalixer. One is a staging environment and one is a production environment. Uh, and then I think our combined bill is like maybe 200 bucks a month. It is it is very manageable, like it's almost nothing. Um, and I've had a couple of billing related questions to Jess and he was super helpful explaining everything and everything makes sense. One of the nice things about it is that we haven't had to worry about any surprise, surprise bills because um, Everything is, the pricing is very transparent. Yeah, that's always fun on AWS where it's like, well, you know, you get billed 18 cents and then suddenly you're not on the free tier and it's like, whoops, it's like 7,000 next month. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So with this uh, GigaLixer setup, even with the one node running, do you have it set up to where you can do zero downtime deploys? Um, when you push something, when you push a new update to GigaLixer and once, uh, once that, you know, commit is accepted and and committed the way the way Elix, Giga Elixir does things is that it will keep your existing uh, existing build alive for 30 more seconds until all the requests finished existing requests finish their life cycle and then it'll terminate that and you know start routing the requests to the new uh, new build so from the user's perspective it has been completely transparent users usually have no idea that an update has been pushed in the middle of the day uh, unless it broke something but fortunately that hasn't happened from that perspective we do get zero downtime deploys and it has been really nice very nice so from a developer's point of view now do you take certain precautions to make sure that things like database migrations are going to work on both the old version and new version of your app in parallel and like if so like what do you do to combat stuff like that that's what, that's the main reason we created our staging environment. So it uses production environment, you know, um, production environments, environment variables and everything like basically similar settings except a different database and different AWS instances and stuff. Uh, so when, when everything we push, everything we are deploying first gets deployed to staging. Now we run the migrations there, make sure things are going to work well. After the migrations run, you know, do some smoke testing to make sure you know nothing inadvertently broke. Um, probably overkill, but it can never be too safe when you are paying users. Is my uh, mindset when it comes to this type of thing. And then once we feel confident about staging. Um, then we push things to production using the exact same steps. So, you know, git push to GigaLixir production and then, um, you know, remote into the console, run the migrations, and then we'll be good to go. Nice. 
So yeah, maybe we can go into a little bit more about the deploy process, because if it's similar to Heroku, it sounds like you just get push and you're done. But do you happen to get push to something like GitHub or GitLab first to run like a CI test and stuff or no? Yes. So when I am um, ready to, um, essentially when I'm done developing a feature and all of this tests and everything is passing on my machine, you know, I do git add, git commit, and then git push origin master to send everything to GitLab. And then GitLab, we have um, a CI set up on there that sort of runs the tests. And then once the tests pass on GitLab, we uh, merge that branch to master. Then on my machine, I switch to master and pull from GitLab again. And then I push to staging. And then once everything is good on staging, then I do get pushed to production. Nice. So basically, mostly automated, but still a couple little manual steps. But you just want to be in control when things get deployed, right? Yes. And I do want to make sure that I run my tests in more than just my own development environment. Because there has been a couple of instances where my local tests passed, but they failed on GitLab. And edge cases, but still important. So... That has been a nice kind of sanity check. Yeah. Do you happen to remember exactly what one of those edge cases are or a couple of them so we know what to look out for? I don't remember, unfortunately. It has been a while. Right. Does your application happen to use any C dependencies or no? Actually, I do remember one instance, and that may be related to a C dependency. Uh, Back in the day when we first uh, developed PriceTail and users started using it, in order to generate PDFs, we were using an Elixir library, and that was that it itself was using the WK HTML to PDF library that that is I think C based. I don't know, but anyway, um, it turned out that getting that package installed and running on GitLab was kind of painful, and it had some edge cases, and it kind of. It was one of the reasons we decided to uh, offload that feature of our application to a microservice that is solely responsible for PDF generation. Ah, so is that microservice also built with Elixir or something else? It is not built with Elixir. I think it is called uh, URL to PDF and... I would need to look up what it is actually written in, but it is deployed on Heroku. It is the only small piece that we have deployed on Heroku. Um, but the nice thing about it is that when you need to generate a PDF, uh, what you do is you compile the HTML and then do a web, do a web request to the microservice using an API key that only price table knows about. And then microservice uh, returns the PDF file, and then you give that PDF file to the user. Nice. So is that URL to PDF like an open source tool that you can self-host, but maybe they also offer like a SaaS app or something? I've ne- I never heard about it before. It is open source. I know that because I found it on GitHub, and it actually featured the fancy single-button deployment to Heroku back when I did it. So that was one of the operational uh simplicities that I appreciated. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of the opposite of simplicities and nice things, maybe now we can talk a little bit about disasters or, you know, dealing with unexpected events. 
So does Gigalixer give you a way to run automated backups for your database? Like, does it do that for you automatically? Gigalixer does that automatically for you. You get, I think, 30 days of backups. Um, and I think every backup is taken uh, once per day. Not necessarily every 24 hours, but uh, you can be reasonably confident, I think, that you will have, um, you know, once, one day's worth of backup when you look for it. Right. Do you happen to know if they give you an option to maybe dial that up to be a little more frequent, like every six hours? Or like, can you go in there and, and run your own like SQL dump or save it somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely, like I have, for example, because I use Postgres, I have my PG admin database administration tool connected to the databases that uh, PriceTable uses on both staging and production. And if I need to do manual backups, I can just you know, right-click backup and just take a dump of the databases. So it has been pretty transparent and easy from that perspective. Nice. So what about uh, other files? Like you mentioned, you know, there's CSV uploads and stuff like that. But are those kind of just like, you know, made to be uploaded to process and then saved in a database and they go away? Or do you back up some PDFs and other stuff too? Uh, most of the user-uploaded CSV, you know, data, uh, related stuff like that, they are uploaded and then converted to um, database rows and they are discarded. Um, we do have uh, users uploading things like you know pictures and documents and things like that that actually need to persist and we everything is on uh, AWS S3 and I think they handle the backups there. So it's not something that we have had to worry about. Right. Yeah. If you can't trust S3, then uh, we're in bigger trouble here. <laughs> exactly. So when it comes to Gigalixer setup, do they give you any way to get monitored if things go wrong? Like what happens if, I don't know, one of the nodes goes down? Like do you get emailed or something like that? Um, I don't know about getting emailed. You may have to, you may have to check that with Jess. But to monitor our application, we use something called Uptime Robot. And it is basically a very simple web service that sort of regularly pulls your your application a URL that you give it, and then as long as that URL or that address returns a 200 response, it assumes that your app is up. And then if you if it gets another type of response like a 400 or 500 type response, then it can send you an email notification. So it's not something that Gigalixer does, but there are so many monitoring services out there that maybe it's not really needed for Gigalixer to do. Uh, it's something that we definitely have done and has been, it has been useful. Right. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Uptime Robot. Are you on their free tier where it just pings it every five minutes? Yes. Cool. So on Gigalixer side of things, do they also hinder, handle all the SSL certificates for you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like I said, I, I love them because they, they just do handle so many things that you would otherwise have to worry about yourself. So Price table went through like many apps. We went through various stages. It used to be that every customer or every tenant in the application had it, its own subdomain or host. So, for example, if you were acme.com, then your URL would be acme.pricetable.io. If you were democompany.com, then your tenant would be demo company dot price table dot io and i remember gigalixer had some difficulties with wildcard ssl certificates but um, 
it's one of the things that I received help um, on from Jess, and it it didn't it didn't turn out to be a major hurdle at all. Um, that's not the case anymore. We uh, ditched the subdomain slash host based tenant uh, routing setup because it proved to be way too complicated for the little benefit that it offered. But um, that is one situation where I had to seek help from Gigalixir um, on SSH certificates. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, subdomains can get pretty crazy because now it's like the customer needs to maybe, you know, hook it up to their own like full-blown domain and you have to handle redirects and SSL certs and it gets super complicated. Exactly. Um, now, you did bring up an interesting discussion point here, though, around multi-tenancy. So which strategy did you use to separate your tenants? Did you did you do like foreign key-based where you have like a tenant ID or did you go Postgres schemas or separate databases? Originally, and when I say originally, this was before we even signed our first customer. This was during the, you know, beta stages. We had everything segregated by um, a, a foreign ID. So every object would belong to, um, you know, company, for example, or account ID, or what have you. Um, and then, after some time passed, I started asking myself if it's the best approach, because one thing that I kept, one thing that I started to realize is that every time I I wrote a query, I had to remember to uh, write it correctly and include that uh, tenants account ID in the query to be able to fetch the correct results. So then I started looking into different approaches. Uh, one approach I found was that you would give each um, tenant their own database, but uh, Gigalixir didn't support that setup. Uh, and I don't think that they do still. Fortunately, in, when it comes to Postgres, there's a third way, and this can be the preferred way if uh, depending on your use case, is uh, schema-based tenant separation, where you your, you have schemas that are essentially folders, if you want to think of them that way. And then what we do is every time somebody creates a new account on price table, we create a new schema for them uh, with a unique name. And then under that schema, we create uh, you know tables from scratch for that tenant. And then every time the tenant makes a request, you know, whether they're logging in or whether they are getting a list of objects from the, the authenticated part of the application, their uh, session is tied to the tenant ID or the tenant's uh, name. And then everything is sort of gate kept that way, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And then I guess what, on the Phoenix side, do you just have like a plug that you wrote that sets the repo to be that tenant? Yeah, uh, yes. There's a there's a plug that sort of makes makes sure that the incoming connection data has the tenant, and then it loads the tenant into um, an assign, and then we then we then take that assign and then uh, plug it as a prefix when we run ectoqueries. Cool. Yeah, and then I guess. Did you set things up to where, you know, typically in a lot of apps, you might have the idea of like a current user, but now do you have something like a current tenant also that you can access? Yes, current tenant and current user are both things that are in the connections assigns. Okay. Now, by the way, speaking of like disasters and stuff, you know, we didn't really get a chance to talk about this one, but when it comes to error reporting, do you have anything set up for that? Or like, do you get emailed when errors come? Do you have a set up with Sentry or something else? 
So for for a while, for a long time, um, we used something called Timber.io. You may be familiar with them. You may not be, but the way the way we set it up is that I set up Timber.io about two years ago, and then I kind of forget about it. To be honest, this is gonna sound bad, but I'll just be fully transparent here. I kind of forgot that I set up Timber.io. And then whenever uh, a user reported an issue, for example, I would, uh, you know, log into, um, I would, you know, launch my terminal window and then I'd do gigalixer logs dash and 5000 or whatever. And that's, I'd see if uh, the error message showed up there. Uh, recently, this, this didn't happen very frequently. But recently, I, I had to deal with an issue where a user reported something that had happened the previous day. And Gigalixir doesn't keep logs that far. I think they only keep like maybe several thousand. So what I ended up doing is I started looking into, um, you know, various log drain companies. Then I remembered that I had set up log drains before with Timber.io. I went to their website and I got a completely different website. So then I went to the Elixir forums, I did a search, and I found out that Timber.io had rebranded or the founders had moved on to create another product or whatever. It was basically deprecated. And then I did more searching, and that's when I found uh, Logflare, I think. And I essentially redirected the drains to Logflare and now Logflare is pretty nice because I haven't really explored a lot of its own features but you get real-time logs and you also get to run pretty complicated if needed queries uh, based on those so depending on the uh, type of error message or the status code for example you can uh, run different types of reports and to try to see patterns so I'm pretty excited about the new setup and it has been working out pretty well for us. Very cool. So between that time when Timber.io went away, I hope you weren't getting billed then per month or annually or whatever. No, we were on the free tier. Um, and the free tier was pretty nice because they, I think, if I remember correctly, they still kept their logs for like seven days or whatever, which was enough for our use case. Um, so it wasn't an issue about, that wasn't the billing issue. Nice. So by the way, earlier, way earlier, you mentioned that you are using Bamboo to send emails, but we didn't get a chance to go over uh, what SaaS tool do you use to send them out, like which transactional email service? Mm -hmm. We use SendGrid. And SendGrid has been super helpful too. We are on the paid tier uh, because the, the free tier used to work well for us, but we recently, about three or four months ago, needed some more advanced functionality such as uh, the ability to uh, get our own dedicated IP when sending emails. Um, so we, I think we pay like $90 a month for SendGrid, which is nothing for us. And they have been very, very reliable. I like them because um, when somebody says, oh, hey, I sent an email and the other side is saying they didn't receive it, can you look into it? You can quickly do a search on SendGrid itself like if price table is not reporting an error message, uh, then you can search on SendGrid and then SendGrid will find that email and show you exactly what um, status response it received from the receiving mailbox. It might be that the user made a typo and they were plugging in the 
uh, email address and that's why it didn't arrive at their destination or whatever. Um, so it has been very flexible and very useful for us. Yeah, that is very handy to have that logs to be able to search. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? Best tips and lessons. Um, honestly, I could probably write a book on this, not because I had the best tips or advice, but because I, I learned a lot uh, from building price table. I had to learn about every part of the stack, including database and uh, full text searches and uh, Postgres, for example. I had to learn a, a lot of, I had to improve my JavaScript knowledge quite a bit. I had to learn about, you know, browser memory management techniques. Um, I had to learn about concurrency in Elixir, even though it is abstracted from you quite successfully. Every now and then you need to sort of pop the hood and go in and do some interesting things, either when debugging or when developing a feature. If you are looking for like one one big lesson um, that I learned, it's not so much about application development per se, because I, I'm not confident that I would have anything, any unique insights there. But I would say trusting Having, having a co-founder you can trust is incredibly important and it has been incredibly beneficial. Um, just to, like a lot of times when people uh, are working on startups, they think in terms of, oh, hey, do I actually need a co-founder when I can do everything myself? And that may be true from a technical perspective. Like I could probably uh, develop price table from scratch by myself. But what the co-founder does is that they give you the ability to uh, they are somebody you can bounce ideas off of, and they, um, me, they, having a co-founder means that you no longer you have somebody to share the burden of decision making with, and that sounds like a small thing, but there's a lot of value in no longer having to think so much on whether you should do something one way or another way, and having somebody to say oh, hey, you should actually do it this third way. Or maybe you should do it this way because X, Y, Z business reasons. Um, so that has been really invaluable. Um, and it's definitely something that I'm very grateful for. Yeah, that is very, very well put because I feel like that is kind of like underutilized, right? Because from the technical point, like you say, it's so easy kind of just to like, yeah, you can sit there and crank out the code, but man, second set of eyes or someone to bounce ideas off of. And even like, I don't know if you're this way as well, but like for me, just having like an accountability partner who I can actually, you know, have some stake into this, it's really nice to have. Yeah. And particularly my co-founder, Travis, he's a domain expert for the industry that we are targeting. So having him like shoot down my ideas that I originally thought were brilliant has been very useful because that means I don't waste time building stuff that nobody will use. Yeah. Very nice to have someone just be like, eh, actually, no, <laughs> yep, but in a friendly exactly. way. So, Agay, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production Podcast. It was really great having you on. Well, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Well, our website is uh, pricetable.io. And, you know, we offer a free trial. And if anybody has any questions or trial extensions, they can email me as well at ege, that is E-G-E at pricetable.io. And I think that's the extent of uh, the links that I have for sharing. I am I have a GitHub profile that I barely use, but if you search for me, you can probably find me as well. Um, 
but I think that's the that's all I have for links for sharing. Cool. So I'll make sure to drop those into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.